Alright, good afternoon friends. Uh, welcome to our Calv service online. Uh, it's a privilege for me to be able to sit here uh, with you this afternoon and, and go through God's Word. Uh, Terry asked me to, to preach this afternoon and it's my pleasure to, to do so. Uh, we're going to be taking a little bit of a break from, from Romans uh, this afternoon and we're going to be looking at the life of Hezekiah. And my prayer is that as we go through, we'll be challenged and encouraged. And, and I certainly was as I did this study. But let's first pray, and then we can dive in. So Lord God, we do come before you. God, I'm thankful for your word. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Lord, it's a privilege to have your word in our hands. So God, I pray that we would be challenged this afternoon we'd be encouraged, we'd be lifted up. God, go before me as I speak, and I pray that you would be glorified in it. Amen. So we've had um, a bit of an interesting year so far in, in 2020. Uh, we've had, you know, drought, we've had fires, we've had floods, we've had pandemic, which is still kind of going on. And, you know, more recently as well, we've had some escalated uh, racial issues. Uh, and you know what? As I came to, to teach on Hezekiah and, and look at him, I was thinking about, you know, doing this character study and what that means and why it's important for us to, to look at different characters. And the simple answer is, you know, God is concerned about our character. He wants to grow godly men and women, right, that, that follow him and serve him. So if you look at me actually at Romans 5 uh, verses 3 through 5, it says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Friends, we all suffer different trials. We go through different hardships. The things I mentioned earlier, they're things that are, are going on in the world and they affect us as well individually. But there's so much that goes on in our lives just from, from a day to day. Uh, perspective, month to month, year to year, different trials that come, right? And as these things come, these trials or persecutions or hardships, whatever they might be, the thing is that they show what's down in us, what's seated in us, right? What our character is. And if we have the Holy Spirit, as we read there in Romans, dwelling in us, then it will be evident what we have in our character when we are under pressure, that's not to say that as believers we don't mess up or that we endure every trial and tough circumstance perfectly, but we can have the opportunity to praise God in those circumstances and seek Him in those circumstances. And the unbeliever, they don't do that. They don't have that. And they're certainly not going to praise God in the hard times. But friends, we're called to rejoice in suffering because we understand and we know the character of God. And if you're having a hard time going through that trial, then look at the character of God and allow him to develop that in you. 
I wanted to look at as well, just in regards to character, uh, Deuteronomy 8.2. Uh, God speaking, and he says, And you shall remember all the way which the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to prove you, to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or no. God knows what's in our heart, right? And he wants us to be aware of what is in it too. So when we're tested or when we're going through a trial, like the people of Israel, the question is, will we complain and gripe? Will we look to other idols or, or other forms of worship? Will we look to all else to help us and God as a last resort? Or will we run to him first and rejoice because we know again and understand his character and that he is developing that in us. So that's what I love about doing character studies and looking at them in the Bible. And I don't sit here this afternoon with a perfect character. I don't sit here having endured every trial perfectly, but I do sit here and want to encourage you that God is with you in those trials and he's developing your character. So I hope as we look at the character of um, Hezekiah this afternoon, that you can draw some things from it. I certainly did. I was challenged. I was encouraged as, as I looked at his life and the things that God did through him. Uh, so join me in it and I hope, yeah, you're encouraged and blessed. So if you flip over with me to, to 2 Kings 18, uh, verses 1 through 8, it says this, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elam, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. So I'm not sure how much you know about Hezekiah or how much you've read or studied about him. But this is a, a pretty good uh, intro to, to Hezekiah. It gives him a, a good rap. Um, and there's no way uh, that we're going to be able to get through every aspect of, of his life and his reign and the things that God uh, did through him and the good stuff and the mistakes uh, that he made also. Uh, but we'll get through as much as we can in the time that we have. And because Hezekiah, he gets a lot of airtime, right, in the, in the Old Testament. As far as kings go, uh, he comes third after David and Solomon is being most talked about. We find him in 2 Kings 18 through 
20 in second chronicles 29 through 32 isaiah 36 through 39 so hezekiah was 25 years old when he began his reign in about 715 bc though he may have been co-regent or co-reigned with his father as early as 729 bc through to 687 bc so he had a 29 year reign right and his name it means the strength the lord strengthens sorry and he certainly was going to need it for his reign and the things that he came up against in his time see his father ahaz had made a a peace treaty with the king of assyria right he paid uh it in gold and objects from the temple and he went even further and he did things like he found a a nice altar that he liked in in damascus and he had uriah build it and bring it to the temple and dedicate it to the lord there but see Israel and the nation there in this deep pit of what we would call syncretism, right? So sure, they might still offer some kind of worship to God, to Yahweh, but it was worthless as they were sharing themselves with all the other gods. They were involved in all kinds of uh, idolatry. And if you want to put it in the words of Hosea, as we read in the book there, they're prostituting themselves with the other nations, right? They were sharing themselves with other gods who were not gods. So there's a few aspects of of Hezekiah's reign and his life that I want to talk about. So first, we're going to talk about the reforms of the king. Then we're going to talk about the words of the enemy to the king. And then we're going to talk about the sick king and the mistake of the king. Those last two, they they kind of go together, um, but we'll run through those uh, with the time that we have. And again, I hope you can take something from it as I have uh, in my study of it. So first, let's let's look at the reforms of of the king. So this is what Hezekiah did when, when he came into reign, right? So he takes over from his father, Ahaz. So after David and Solomon, um, you know, there's a pretty bad line of kings, right? There's been a few good ones uh, dotted here and there as you go, but they didn't do to the same extent uh, the things that Hezekiah did, right? And the works that God did through him. And I want to just take a minute here as well and just pause and reflect back on our own lives and our own history right you might have come from a long line of wicked kings or a long line of you know people in your life a legacy of bad rulers right i'm grateful that that my mum and dad uh, loved the lord and and raised me in a way that was god honoring but for some of you, you might even be the first in your family to, to serve Christ and follow him, right? That might be your story. The legacy that was left to you might be one of self-serving actions, one of self-destruction. It might be a legacy of, you know, drunkenness and abuse. It might be a legacy of morally good people, but that don't serve Christ and don't follow him. And it might be a legacy of those who love Jesus and serve him. But the question is, 
and the choice comes to us is what are we doing? What is our choice? Will we break the line of rejecting God as rightful king? Will we start a new legacy? Or on the other hand, are we just going to carry on that legacy? Are we going to carry on that wicked rule? And it only takes one to break the cycle. Friends, and that's for better or worse. So as we're going through um, the life of Hezekiah, friends, keep that in mind. That we each have, have a different story. We each come from you know, a different legacy left to us. But Hezekiah, he took a stand and he changed. And what he did was he started some reforms, right? As he made these changes and started to try and rebuild that legacy. So I want to draw your attention to verse 4 of, of chapter 18 in Second Kings. Um, we did read it, uh, but it says this. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah and he broke in pieces the bronze servant, serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. And then if you jump over to Second Chronicles and in chapter 29, uh, verse 5, it says this. And Hezekiah said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. So what's reform one? What does Hezekiah do? He cleans house, right? So previous kings had gone wrong in, in many areas. They had helped to, to continue to lead Israel in, in a place of idolatrous uh, worship, right? And you had some good kings um, that did, quote, what was right in the eyes of the Lord, like Hezekiah's grandfather, Jotham. But they still didn't remove the high places. And if you go through that history of the kings, you'll see that, that that's one thing that they didn't do or didn't completely do. See, when King Solomon, when he accumulated all those wives, right, he started to build high places and places of worship for their gods, right? That was something that took his heart away from God. And between Solomon and Hezekiah, only Asa and Jehoshaphat had to go at removing these high, high places. And they only attempted that in, in Judah, not um, in the other tribe as well. And by the time we get to Hezekiah's father Ahaz, we have many aspects of worship and temple proceedings that the Lord had set up completely abandoned for idol worship and in the place of authentic worship that God desired and he had originally set up. So they had exchanged God-honoring worship for idol worship and other places were set up all over the place, right? Idolatrous filth in the words of Hezekiah. Get the filth out. So going back to this legacy idea again, can you see the importance of breaking the cycle and how hard it can be for people to get back on track with the Lord? And sadly, on the other hand too, we can have a good legacy that like Hezekiah was trying to set up. And then we have one fool who despises the Lord and ruins that. And we have that in his son as well, in Hezekiah's son. So again, if we have a bad legacy, let's change it. Let's be the ones who bring our families back to the worship of God. 
if you have a good legacy left to you, carry that on and don't be the fool that ruins that. So Hezekiah, he does these two things, right? At the start, he gets rid of the high places and the filth from the temple. And he starts sorting out the leadership as well, right? So Hezekiah looks at what has stolen the hearts and the affections of the people away from the Lord before. And he says, enough's enough. Let's get rid of that. Let's get rid of that which steals the affections of the people. So he destroys the high places and he even breaks the bronze serpent, right? That we read there in, in 2 Kings and he gets rid of that. So just on that, look, I believe that, that we are created to worship. We are created to give worship and praise. The problem is ever since the fall, man has been prone to give praise and worship to that which does not deserve it. So the question comes to us, what are we giving praise and worship to that has no rights to our heart and our affection? And you might say, Daniel, look, I don't bow down to a statue. I don't burn incense to it. I don't sacrifice my children to an idol. And no, that might be true. You might not do those things, but idol worship just might look a bit different for you. And it looks a bit different in the West today. So ask yourself, who gets most of my thoughts and affection? Who or what gets most of my time and money? Who or what gets most of my love and attention? Friends, is it your appearance? It might be that for some people. Is it your grades? Your family? Is it sport? Is it your career? And none of those things, right, are inherently wrong. But if you put God first, everything else will find its proper place. And everything that does not honor God should be pulled down and broken. Like the bronze serpent was supposed to serve as a reminder to the people of Israel, right? It was supposed to remind them of God's, God saving them and rescuing them. It did not find its proper place, right? The people began to worship that image instead of God. So if there is anything that puts itself in place of God, we need to put it in its proper place or it needs to go. Hezekiah has seen enough to know the issues, what the issues were. So the first thing he does was to take away the things again that stole the heart of the people and took them away from following God. Even the things that started out as something good, like that serpent. And then he calls the leadership together, right? To get it done. He's gathering them to get this job done of cleaning house. Right? In our second Chronicles uh, passage, there in, in verse 5, he gathers the priests and the Levites and he tells them to consecrate themselves. He says, go through the process to become clean. Wash the filth off yourselves, get ready, become holy and set apart, right? There is a job to do, he says, and the need to be focused and ready. If you're still wallowing in that filth, if you're still concerning yourself with that filth and giving worship and praise to that, which does not deserve it, 
You need to stop. You need to consecrate yourself. You need to set yourself apart for God. So he's getting the leaders in order. And if you go down with me to verse 10 through 11 of chapter 29 in in Chronicles, it says this. Now it is in my heart, Hezekiah speaking, to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him and to be his ministers and make offerings to him. And I love this, right? It starts with Hezekiah. Hezekiah makes a covenant in his heart with God that he is not going to be like his fathers. And then he calls these leaders together and puts that on them, gives them the same thing. And this is a kick for us, right? Friends, we live in a world that for the most part has left the worship of God for the worship of something else. And we have a job to do. We have to do what we can to draw the attention and affection of those around us, not to us, but to God. So Daniel, don't be negligent. Friends, don't be negligent. Make this promise in your heart with God that you're not going to continue in the filth and you will draw the attention of others to him, to God, the one who deserves praise. In verses 15 through 19, it says this, They gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. The priests went into the inner part of the, uh, of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord. And the Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. They began to consecrate on the first day of the first month and on the eighth day of the month, and they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days they consecrated the house of the Lord, and on the sixteenth day of the first month they finished. Then they went to Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils, and the table for the showbread and its utensils. All the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. And this response from the leaders is so good, right? They go and they get it done. They don't just take it out of the temple, but they take it down to the brook Kidron or the Kidron Valley, and they get rid of it. They discard it. They get it far away from the temple of the Lord. They see the wrong that has been done, right? This vi- this um, vision and what Hezekiah covenant that he makes with the Lord, right, has been passed on to them. They see the wrong of their forefathers and how they have abandoned the Lord. And they get themselves and the temple ready to be used correctly. Wisby says this, If we are to have revival in the Lord's work, we must begin with cleansing. Over the years, individuals and churches can gradually accumulate a great deal of religious rubbish while ignoring the essentials of spiritual worship. So again, I want to always bring this back to us. Have we accumulated rubbish in our lives and called it spiritual and God-honoring? Friends, 
we need to be about true spiritual worship. God wants to cleanse us of the filth of the things that get in the way of that. Allow him to do that. Speaking of, of worship, reform too, right? Is worship restored? So if you go down um, to verses, this is sort of contained in verses 20 through 20 uh, through 36, sorry, of uh, chapter 29. This section um, is interesting, right? Because we're getting the, the proper temple worship and practices being restored. And how they kick this off, um, how Hezekiah has this done, is he has the sin offering, burnt offering, and a thank offering, right? The sin offering being an atonement for sin. The burnt offering is thankfulness to God and dedication to him. And the thank offering is what was offered as above and beyond or extra gratitude to the Lord. So in, in verse uh, 20 through 24, I'll just read, Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city, and went up to the house of the Lord, and they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering, for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. Israel. So the first offering made after the Levites had consecrated themselves was the sin offering. So Hezekiah knows his sin. The people know they have sinned and they know what had to be done in response to that. And it's key, right? For all Israel. Friends, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, have we not? Christ became the once for all sin offering for us. But there's still sacrifice involved for us. We are called to be living sacrifices. God now dwells in us and we are the temple and there should be sacrifices made in the temple. If we are still operating this bodily temple for our own pleasure and sacrifice nothing for Christ, then maybe... We've got the wrong temple set up and the wrong worship set up. And we need to evaluate that. We need to go back, allow Christ to cleanse out that filth, make those reforms and make us clean so that we can commence a life of worship for him. The next offering that was made, the burnt offering is in verses 27 through 28. If you read with me here, chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel, the whole assembly worshipped and the singers sang and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. 
Right, so the next offering, again, the burnt offering. This offering was an offering of thankfulness and dedication to God. The order of the sacrifices here, I think, is important. Right, we are cleansed from our sin, and this brings out thankfulness and dedication to the Lord. At least it should. While the sacrifices is going on, there's great celebration, right? They've got music going and singing. And this offering is, is concluded by the singing of psalms. And when they do that, they bow down and worship. From the highest to the lowest, they worship God. You see that in verse uh, 29. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. We can't be proud or take credit for dealing with the sin. We can't pat ourselves on the back and say, good job, Daniel, you took care of your sin. When we have the weight and the guilt lifted from us because of our sin, the natural response should be that we worship God. We praise him, right? Friends, you and I, we're not invincible. We can't stand up and deal with our own sin on our own. We can't take the punishment that that deserves. And that's why Christ came and he died for us. Again, it, it always comes back to what he's done. So friends, don't try and deal with, with your sin. Give it to Christ. Let him deal with it as he has promised he will do. Follow the example here that we have in verse 29. Bow your knee, humble yourself before God if you have not already, and give yourself to Christ. Finally, in verse 31, we have the thank offering. So in 31 it says, Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near. Bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. So Hezekiah, he kind of opens the floor up, right? He gives opportunity for all who had a willing heart to bring more burnt offerings and thank offerings. So as a group, they had dedicated themselves to the Lord. Now comes the individual action. All who wanted to give more and dedicate themselves personally to the Lord and give above and beyond did so. So again, my question is, when God gives us the opportunity to give more and dedicate ourselves to him, do we have a willing heart? Are we willing to give above and beyond? And I'm not just talking about money here. I'm talking about time, affection, resources, our whole life. And God doesn't want, according to 2 Corinthians 9, 7, he doesn't want a begrudged offering or giving or sacrifice. He wants that out of a joyful heart, right? The people were ready. And they, if you continue reading there, they gave a lot. And this is definitely not a call to just give more money to the church. This is not what I'm saying here. This is a call to give all that you are to God. All that you are. Again, we are to be living sacrifices for him. So if we move on to Reform 3, what Hezekiah does is he introduces the, the Passover again. If you jump over into to chapter 30 of Second Chronicles. 
Passover was to be celebrated each year into Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, sorry. And evidently this wasn't happening as it should. And this is a brilliant move from, from Hezekiah as well. See, there is a political separation, right? Hezekiah is king over Judah, but you have the northern kingdom as well that is separated. And they're currently under the governing or the rule of Assyria, right? They're oppressed by them. And they've kind of gone along with it, right? They're just worshipping the Gentile gods, worshipping the pagan gods up there. And Hezekiah, he wants to unite the people of Israel spiritually, even though there was a strong political division. Since the days of Solomon, right, there had not been a nationwide celebration of Passover. So Hezekiah sends out the invitation. He calls for there to be a nationwide reunion celebrating what God had done in rescuing them from Egypt. All this, right, is going on and there is the impending sort of invasion from Assyria on Judah. But if you read with me, um, in verse 8, we'll start there, of chapter 30. It says, Do not now, Hezekiah says, Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever, and serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you turn, if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So the couriers went from city to city through the country of Ephraim, Manasseh, and as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. However, some men of Asher, of Manasseh, and of Zebulun yield to the Lord to come and worship the God who has rescued them in the past and promises to rescue them in the present. But what happens? These messengers go out and some laughed and reject his offer, but some humble themselves and come. And this is really no different today. Friends, we have a message for people today to yield and come and worship the Lord. Come and celebrate the freedom from captivity that he has provided through Christ. If you do this, his wrath will be turned away from you. But again, we have those who laugh at us, mock, scorn, or just straight out ignore the message. But on the other hand, again, praise God, others who humble themselves, not before us, it's not about us, but before God. And nonetheless, this message needs to go out. In verses uh, 17 through 20, read with me, it says, For there were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. Therefore the Levites had to slaughter the Passover lamb for everyone who was not clean, to consecrate it to the Lord. For a majority of the people, many of them from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not cleansed themselves. Yet they ate the Passover otherwise than was prescribed. For Hezekiah had prayed for them, saying, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary rules of cleanliness. 
and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. Man, we have a scene here where, where people are turning up, right, and partaking of the Passover that Hezekiah had invited them to. But according to Exodus 12, 14 through 20, you had to clean your, yourself and your house of leaven and not eat any for seven days, right? And the consequences of this was that you would be cut off from Israel if you did not cleanse yourself before you partook of Passover. So Hezekiah prays for them, as we read, and asks God to pardon them, right? And when I read this, man, I was blown away the first time I read this. When you read the, un the Old Testament and you understand the punishment for not holding God's law, right? And how seriously that's held. And then you have these people turning up and partaking of the Passover other than what was prescribed and what was required of them. Hezekiah prays for them, right? Because he understands. If this isn't a picture of Christ, I don't know what is, right? Hezekiah stands in for the people. Folks, the Lord, we're condemned to death because of our sin. And that requires, you know, punishment. Our sin requires punishment. But Christ, he interceded for us. He stepped in for us and says, hold on a minute. I'll take that punishment. We are deserving of the punishment, but Christ took that for us. Friends, Hezekiah didn't take any punishment, right? But he sees the people that otherwise should be punished for not operating correctly, not partaking of the Passover correctly. And he intercedes to God for them. And he asks God to pardon them. This is amazing. As we move on here, let's go back to, to 2 Kings. All right. We'll do a bit of jump back and forth, but back to chapter 18. Right. And in this next section, we're going to talk about the words of the enemy to the king. So there's more reforms that we could talk about, um, but time doesn't allow. So Hezekiah started to make these reforms, right? And Assyria, as we mentioned, uh, come. And they're coming to, to invade and overthrow. There's, it's a bit interesting here in, in the narrative, but Assyria has already taken the northern tribe captive, right? And Hezekiah asks the king of Assyria, he says, what, what do you require, right, for, for you to not come and, and throw us? And the king says, oh, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And Hezekiah, to pay this, he has to strip some things from the temple. And he gives this money to the king of Assyria. But this apparently wasn't good enough, right? And he sends the army with the leading officials anyway, the king of Assyria does. And they surround and they line up on the walls, right, against Judah. And next, the Rabshakeh, who's like a representative for Assyria, he starts to lay out this message for Hezekiah and mock him. And he does this so that all the people on the wall can hear. And he does it in their language so that they understand fully. Right? Very intentional. 
And I want to point out a few things here from this assault or this mocking. And the first one is in uh, verse 19 of chapter 18 in 2 Kings. And he says this, the Rabshakeh speaking. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? So first point being, on what do you rest this trust of yours? And this is doubt. The enemy wants you to doubt that you can put your trust in God. And this is exactly what's happening here. When Jesus tempts, uh, sorry, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness, among other things, he offers Jesus food and power in a time of need. The enemy will do what he can to make us believe that we cannot trust God to give us what we need and to provide for us and be our defender. Next, in verse 25, it says this, more or the Rabshakeh says this, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I have come up against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. The Lord said to me, go up against this place and destroy it. The king of Assyria next wanted the people to believe that God is fighting for Assyria. He's on the Assyrian side. The Lord told me to come up against you. You are out of favor with God and you are supposed to be his chosen people. It looks like God's fighting for me, says the king of Assyria. Friends, the enemy may come against us because God has allowed us to be chastened or that we may be tested, right? You just got to look at Job for that. But punishment or testing is not intend us to make, intended to make us flee from God, but it is intend us to, intended for us to run into his arms and to go to him as a defender and savior, not run to the enemy. Next, in verses 29 through 30. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you out of my hand. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city will not be given into the hand of the king. Again, the Rabshakeh is, not, is doing all he can to turn the hearts and the minds of the people away from God, away from Hezekiah, and make them crumble. The enemy loves to plant these seeds, and he's been doing it since the beginning. When we see the serpent in the garden, and he says, did God really say? Don't let God trick you into thinking following him is the best option. Don't let God trick you into thinking that you are better off in his care. Friends, how did it end for Adam and Eve and for all of mankind? When they trusted in the words of the enemy, they were led away, right? They ended up in a broken relationship. We are in a broken relationship because of sin, because of believing the words of the enemy. And they were taken out of the beautiful garden and out of God's protection and now we're subject to the influence and the disaster that the enemy brings. Don't let the enemy deceive you. Lastly, in this sort of assault by the Rabshakeh, in verses 31 through 32, 
It says this, Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me. Come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, each one of you his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. Do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Lastly, I want to point out this from the Rabshakeh. His words there, right? Your own land. Plenty to eat and drink, olive trees, honey, you'll live, not die. Wait on a minute. If we go back to the garden again, again, what were Satan's words? Did God really say, you shall surely not die if you eat of this fruit, right? And doesn't this sort of, this uh, statement by the Rabshakeh, doesn't that sound a bit like Exodus 3 with God's promises to Israel? Right, the lies of the enemy, they don't change. God offers us what is good and right and perfect. But the enemy offers that which is false. A hope that is temporal, fleeting. And ultimately will be led to captivity. And here's the thing, right? They might have been taken to a pretty nice land that was offered by the king of Assyria. But they would have been taken as captives out of the land that God had provided and promised them and delivered to them. The lies of the enemy may sound alluring, but friends, they only lead us into captivity. You will, you will surrender to one king or another, right? Let that king be the king of kings and lord of lords, the king that can actually deliver and defend you, not the king that will leave you, lead you into slavery and captivity. Friends, let us surrender to God. The enemy, he'll be defeated once and for all. And he'll be done away with. And we look forward to that day. But these are the words of the enemy and the devil to us even now. The enemy always knows the power of God. He just doesn't want us to know it. He wants to take you captive he wants to lead you in false pretenses, false hope, and take you away from God. Our true hope, our true defender. All right, we're going to take a bit, jump over here to Isaiah. So if you go with me there to Isaiah chapter 38, if I can get my technology to work here. In verses 1 through 4, it says, In those days Hezekiah became sick, and he was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness with a whole heart and I've done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. The life of Hezekiah takes a turn here. He becomes ill. 
And this is a this is a fascinating and interesting portion of of Hezekiah's life, right? He pleads, and you can read the the whole big section there. But he pleads with God, and he's granted an extra fifteen years of life. And these years, while lived in peace, well, they ultimately provide an opportunity for the kingdom of Judah to be overthrown by the Babylonian Empire and led into captivity. It says there in, in verse 1, in those days. So again, the Assyrian invasion, it was real, right? Most agree that Isaiah 36 and 37, the chapters um, before, which describe the Assyrian invasion and, and rounds up with uh, the defeat of the angel of the Lord is post-Hezekiah's illness. Because in verse 6 here of chapter 38, it says God promises deliverance from the Assyrian forces, right? To top this off, right, the pressure, Hezekiah is about 39 years old and he doesn't yet have a direct descendant to take the throne. This man is, is struggling. His kingdom his lineage, he thinks maybe even the, the promise of a line on the throne from David is under threat. And now he's ill, even to the point where everyone's pretty sure he's going to die. And I can sympathize with him, right, when he prays to the Lord and asks to be healed. In 1B, it says to set his house in order, right? Amos came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. And this is a blessing. God gives Hezekiah the opportunity to set things right before he dies. Not everyone gets that chance to make things right before they die. Most just get the time God allows and that's it, and not too much warning before you go. And the question is begged for us. If I died tonight, if you died tonight, what would you leave behind? What would your house look like? Is it prepared for you to leave? Is it in order? And that goes all the way back to our legacy conversation at the start. Have you made the reforms in your home, in your life, that will give it the best chance or have to have a continued legacy, right? A God-honoring legacy. If you go with me over to chapter 39 now, as we come uh, to the close of Hezekiah's reign uh, and what we have written about it, it's both joyful and sad, right? So the bright side is that Hezekiah, like we said, is granted 15 more years. And as we uh, previously mentioned, these years were lived in peace. Now we have these emissaries, right? They come from, from Babylon to say congratulations on getting better. Hezekiah, we heard that you were sick, and now you better, you know, we've come to bring you some gifts. And doesn't give away too much in the text, guys come, right? He received the gifts without, as far as we know, giving God the credit for his recovery, and then proceeds to show them everything in the kingdom, as if he's flaunting what he has. This wealth, it wasn't all gathered by Hezekiah, and it certainly didn't belong to him, just to him. And this made me stop and think about that which I have and which God's given me, right? Friend, God sustains us and gives us life. 
And if he has blessed us with things abundantly, what are we doing with that? And before you think yourself not very wealthy, just because you're born in the West, you're considered wealthy. Now, Hezekiah may not have suspected these guys from Babylon to be suspicious or that something bad would come out of this because they weren't really a threat at this time, right? The focus was on Assyria. They were the threat. But we see later on that they do become a real threat and they leave and they lead, sorry, um, Israel and into captivity. And we have the Babylonian captivity. The king was basking in fame and wealth and apparently neglecting his spiritual life. And it's been said that Hezekiah was safer as a sick man in bed than as a healthy man on the throne. If Hezekiah had remained sick and died early, who knows what history would have looked like. God had it planned out. As men make their choices for better or worse, the grand weaver, as Ravi would put it, is putting together this awesome tapestry. And that tapestry has led to the correction and guiding of his people over history and the redemption of man. Yet there's still a portion, right, that we cannot fully see properly, a bit of this tapestry that we don't fully understand in full. And that's the second return of Christ, the ushering in of the eternal kingdom, ruled by the perfect king who is free from mistakes and blunders, selfishness and pride. This king will conquer evil once and for all. No country will be able to invade. No puny king will be able to withstand his power. And every knee, both small and great, will bow and be submitted to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'm excited about this to come. And as we wrap up here, as we go through life and we've submitted, hopefully, to the King, there is no doubt that God has done a great transformation in our lives, right? And praise God for this. He has cleaned out the junk and he continues to do so because we need it. We tend to accumulate a bit over time. He has shown us and continues to show us what true worship is. And friends, one day we'll be able to gather at that great table and we can celebrate and rejoice and look back on what God has done for us. My prayer for us today is that if you have not submitted to this King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that you would do so and allow him to transform your life. If you have submitted to him, stay the path. Don't become prideful and selfish. Give God the glory for he is the only one that deserves it. Don't be like Hezekiah there at the end, flaunting all this stuff and taking credit for it. And lastly, don't be deceived by the enemy. It was said that when the enemy cannot destroy like a lion, he deceives like a serpent. That envoy from Babylon came in like a serpent. And from that, they were able to bring down the nation. Friends, don't let the enemy in. Stay close to the Lord. Allow him to make those reforms and changes in your life. Let me pray as we close. I pray that you have a good week ahead. Honor God in what you do. Seek him. Stick to him in the trials. As those hard times come and the enemy brings things against you, don't run to the enemy. Run to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you again for your word. Thank you 
that you sustain us and carry us through. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you that he went to the cross for our sin and rose from the dead three days later, showing his power and his victory over sin and death. Lord, thank you that you have made a way that take our sin and our punishment. God, I pray that we would be submitted to you. God, I pray that we would run to you in times of hardship and in the good times, Lord. I pray that we would stick with you. God, not run to the enemy, not run to the things of this world or things that might seem alluring, Lord, but trust in you and your character. God, I pray that we would be submitted to that character building, no matter how hard it gets and no matter how tough the trial. God, you've promised to be with us and go before us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.